Our Father, we're thankful once again that the Scripture has been preserved down through history against all opposition. That the Word of God is, is perfect and sufficient for every good work. That within it is a complete exposition of your character, of the plan of salvation, of the great issues that we as creatures made in your image have to face every day of our life. And more importantly, that we will be held accountable for, in an eternal perspective for how we respond to these great issues. We ask now that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts through your grace shown to us in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, we're in this uh, section uh, on the life of Christ on the birth, and we've had some um, interruptions here, so... Let me kind of review and also point out in the notes that are handed out tonight, there's a mistake of heading. Um, on page 27, that should not be centered and in bold. It should be uh, just a paragraph heading because uh, unbeliefs need to reject the virgin birth on page 27 is a subtopic of the main topic on page 25, unbelieving responses. First part of unbelieving responses is the ancient and modern rejection of the virgin birth on page 25, that subtitle. And then that um, bold thing on page 27 should actually be a subtitle. So you might make a note of that. Otherwise, the logic of where we're moving might fail you. Um, apologize for sitting here sucking on something while we're trying to teach. But... Um, you see that I'll be blowing my nose all the time. So, um, What I want to do is follow in each of these four divisions of the Lord Jesus Christ, the topic of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-Man Messiah, um, a pretty similar approach. And just to review, what we're doing in our approach is to show that because the Lord Jesus is the sine qua non, the highest manifestation of the revelation of God, it follows very quickly that people's response to the Lord Jesus Christ reveals their heart. So man is measured by his response to Christ. It's not the other way around. The world would have us believe that we're not really sure who Jesus is. We're not really sure. The church really isn't sure who he was. That's the kind of article you always get in Newsweek or Time magazine around Christmas time. The New Testament is exactly opposite. In the New Testament, we are very sure of who Jesus is. We're not really sure what men do with him. So, in the birth, what we've done in our notes we spent considerable time on page 20, page 21, page 22, showing that the virgin birth is necessary to expositing who Jesus Christ is. The virgin birth is not a peripheral issue. The virgin birth of Christ in the 20th century has... And the, first part of the 20th century, came to be a very, very church-splitting, controversial issue. Well, we may get to that tonight. 
But the virgin birth is the essential historical event behind the advent of the God-man. We're talking here about God becoming man. The vehicle of that is the virgin birth. So that's why the virgin birth is not a subsidiary, secondary topic. It's, uh, what I'm doing here is what we've done for the last three or four years. I'm trying to link in your mind a doctrinal truth with a historical event to protect you. To protect you against deception. Because if you learn Bible doctrine separated from its historical root, what you wind up with is just religious opinion. True truth is related to what happened in real history. And it will also protect you against assaults of unbelief where those assaults come spouting Christian terminology but denying these historic events, saying they are just peripheral, they're incidental, you don't really have to believe those. What we're trying to show you is that the Bible itself, this is not me, not the fundamentalist, the Bible itself insists that God acted in history. It's his arena. And if he says he did something, then he did something. So his works are open to historical observation. They're empirically verifiable in, in that sense of the word. So last time, since we're talking about the virgin birth as the anchor event for the truth that we're going to get into in the same chapter, the God-man truth, we're going to link, and I haven't got the slide overhead transparency made yet because I haven't thought it through all the way. We're going to link the virgin birth with a doctrine. And that doctrine has been known in church history as the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union means the union of God and man in one person. Now you talk about creation being incomprehensible. This is a tremendously difficult doctrine to get balanced correctly. But every heretic, every false cult denies the hypostatic union in some form or another. So it's a great litmus test. It's like a Geiger counter. It detects radioactivity in the environment. This detects theological radioactivity in the environment, theological decay. You watch how any group handles the doctrine of the hypostatic union, you'll know immediately whether they're on track or off track. So this is really essential stuff. So we're going to fortify why the virgin birth is so necessary to this doctrine. And in doing it, we're just simply continuing the same idea that we've developed earlier. Remember? The doctrine of God, man, and nature is linked to the creation event. It's also linked to the flood and the covenant that followed the flood. Redemption in the Old Testament is linked to the historical exodus. 
So we're doing nothing different than what we've already been doing. We're just applying that same methodology to the New Testament. And what we're going to do is we're showing that the virgin birth is part and parcel of the whole scripture framework. And we've studied so far that from the standpoint of prophecy, the virgin birth is a necessity. If Jesus Christ was not virgin born, as you look at the notes, you'll notice the two major passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 7.14, page 21. That is a signal of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And it's Isaiah 7.14, we pointed out, speaks of the virgin. And in pagan religion, you have a lot of emphasis on the virgin. One of our constellations is called what? Virgo. So, it's been around for centuries and centuries and centuries and thousands and thousands of years, so much so that when you sit in a modern college classroom, the professor will often tell you that the virgin birth of the New Testament is just another example of ancient thinking where they looked to this virgin birth deliverer. Well, we reverse that. What we say is that the ancient world did look to a virgin birth savior, but it did so because they had been taught Genesis 3, the first occurrence there, and that had unfolded gradually through Noah, through Noah's sons, out into the various pagan people groups. So these stories became distorted, they became corrupted, but they had some of that original vocabulary in them. So the mere presence of the virgin stories, the virgin birth stories, is not a refutation of scripture, it's a confirmation of scripture. It's part of the early Noahic revelation that just simply hasn't gone away yet or has been picked up and distorted. The idea of the the virgin goddess, Venus, and so forth. Why is this fascination in ancient mythology with, with this goddess? It's because it's a perversion of something that's true. What did Adam call his wife? The mother of all life. There's something very powerful about the role of the female in history. We'll see more of that tonight. So, it's it's necessary prophetically by Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And then on page 22, we covered the other prophetic side of the story, and that is what we covered a couple of years ago, where we said that the Davidic line comes to an end with Jeconiah in Jeremiah 22, so that if Joseph, who's married to Mary, If Joseph was the father of Jesus, we've got a problem with the Jeremiah 22 prophecy. So Matthew, uh, Isaiah 7.14 is a positive prophecy. Isaiah 7.14, that positively affirms that the Messiah must be the virgin, must be born of a virgin. But the other prophecy, the Jeremiah 22 prophecy, negatively insists that it can't be through the Davidic line through Jaconiah. So that pretty well sets up a template which has to be fulfilled in the New Testament somehow. And we said last week, I followed Fruchtenbaum's suggestion that the Matthew genealogy is there to basically show that Jesus Christ can't be of that genealogy. 
Now, tonight we're going to go to uh, page 23, and we're going to get into some pretty deep stuff as far as uh, new areas. But we have to understand these areas in order to understand what the Bible is getting at. And we're going to study two words, two kinds of sin. Well, there's actually three kinds of sin in Scripture. There's imputed sin, there's inherent sin, and there's personal sin. Now, 99 times out of 100, when we use the word sin, what we're thinking about is personal sin, acts that we do. But the Bible speaks of two other categories of sin. One is imputed sin. And what this means is, because of our organic union with Adam, we share his sin. Adam's sin is imputed to his progeny. So everyone in Adam has sinned. Now I know the objection that, well, I was in the garden and that's unfair because, gee, I wasn't there. Well, the divine answer to that basically is, if you were there, you would have done the same thing. So Adam acts as our representative. It's not altogether clear, all the details. It's just that the Bible says that this, somehow we're in union with Adam and we share his destiny. So we share in his sin. So his sin is imputed to us and it doesn't make any difference how many personal sins you did. You may have 1,852 in the last week. It doesn't, doesn't affect your imputed sin. Imputed sin is yours by virtue of your birth, period. You don't have to do any personal sin to have imputed sin. Just because you exist... You're under imputed sin. So even if you lived a perfect life, you still have imputed sin. The th third category of sin is inherent sin. And that's in the flesh. That's the sin principle behind personal sin. That's why we're, the thing we're always fighting in redemption is our own personal, depraved, fallen nature. That's inherent sin. Now, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, here's why those categories are important. Jesus has got to be free of all three categories of sin, not just personal sin. In order to qualify as the perfect sacrifice that's going to die for us on the cross, it's going to be a lamb without spot and without blemish. So therefore, Jesus Christ has to be from category one sin, category two sin, category three sin. And the virgin birth is the vehicle through which that miracle takes place. It's a, a grand chess maneuver by the sovereign creator to bring about the generation in human history of a human being who escapes all three categories of sin. On page 23, you'll see there's two more necessities. One is the legal moral necessity and the other is the spiritual necessity. Now, by legal moral necessity, what we're dealing with is the issue of imputation. That's what we're dealing with there. By the spiritual necessity, we're dealing with the issue of inherent sin. <coughs> All right, let's look first at the legal moral necessity to deal with the imputed sin issue. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. The Bible must be taken on its own terms. 
We cannot come to the Bible and wish it said something else and then force it. Can't force it. You've got to let the text speak. You can disagree with it. Perfectly free to disagree. But you have to give it a shot and try to understand it before you disagree. In Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now let's watch the logic of this. This is Paul. He's talking about imputed sin. What was the curse in the garden? If you eat, what would happen? You're going to die. And there's various kinds of death. But you're going to die. So, the issue to Adam was, if you go negative, you reject, then death to you. That's the issue. Now, once God said that, he can't retract it. That's the rule. That's the function. That's the name of the ball game. Well, Adam went ahead, of course, and sinned. Now, because he sinned, the death that comes upon him comes upon us all. And Paul, in verse 12 of Romans, says, sin entered into the world and death entered into the world through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, the argument is that we are dying right now because of imputed sin. When a baby is born, he begins to die. We all carry the death sentence. We're all under capital punishment. For what? Not our personal sin. We're under the capital punishment because of our sin in Adam. It's imputed sin that causes death. And that's why Paul says, death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not credited where there is no law. So it wasn't the violations of personal sin under the law that caused death. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. So it's pre-Torah. It's pre-law. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So his point is that death is a universal. And a universal effect in God's history has to have a universal cause. And there's only one universal cause you can find. The death sentence in the Garden of Eden. Now, how all this fits together, theologians have butted heads with this for centuries. We're not going to get into all the theological debates. That's a whole graduate course in historical theology. I'm just pointing out to you, there's a whole vast area of specialized theology right here. It's just that for our purposes, to keep things practical and under, under control reasonably, we're going to say that it was necessary for Jesus Christ somehow to enter this world without becoming part of Adam. Because if he becomes part of Adam, then he inherits that imputed sin. So how does the God-man get set up in history so that he avoids imputed sin? Well, if you look in the text, in, in my notes there, where I say Adam's original sin is credited or imputed to all of his descendants, all humanity, including Eve, are descended from Adam. Now, here's where you've got to watch it. 
See, people are so fast and slippery and goosey with Scripture. They like to come in here and make fun of that Genesis 2 story. Oh, isn't that a nice poetic story of man's creation? How sentimental. What a wonderful poetic picture of woman being created out of the sight of man. Better watch it. There's a deep theology in there. If Eve was not created from the side of Adam, then Adam is not the head of the human race. The feminine genetic structure has got to be under that sentence. So how else is Eve going to be under Adam if she didn't come out of Adam and share in Adam's nature? Then the imputation doesn't run through the feminine side of the line. So Eve is created, and here's, a, here's one of those neat things about Scripture. The more you learn of Scripture, the less inclined you're going to be to doubt it because it fits so nicely together. It tucks together so well. When you see these little details, if at first you don't understand it, keep reading, keep praying, keep asking the Lord to give you insight. It may be years later before it fits together. If we don't worry about it, and we'll eternity talk about these things. But as you learn more of Scripture, you'll see these things dovetail to the point where nobody is going to shake your faith because you are so convinced When God speaks, he speaks coherently from generation to generation. And when God works, he works consistently from century to century. This little episode right here isn't just sweet poetry. This is a very specific method and rule of created history. And Eve's generation out of the sight of Adam is essential to that. Okay, following again in the notes... Another well-known biblical illustration of mankind's legal moral unity is in Hebrews chapter 7. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7. The idea of imputation was carried on, not just with Adam, but it was carried on later in history. Hebrews 7.4 And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who, re- who re- received tithes, paid tithes. Now watch verse 9 and verse 10. That's the same Hebrew idea. That when Abraham acted in this position of coming before the last of the great Gentile priests, Melchizedek, and he was blessed by Melchizedek, he's in a passive recipient's mode. But because he is going to spread out in history with his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons, all of those sons, great-grandsons and great-great-grandsons are seen as participating somehow in that act. So, he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now today, we have maybe have a little more insight into that because we work with DNA structures and genes and so on. They didn't know genes in the days in which this text was written, but it was an idea that had been given to them by God. So, whenever we have a point in history where a significant event is done, the physical descendants of that somehow share in that. Uh, just as a sub-point, this explains something about the Mosaic Law Code that may at first glance seem kind of hard, There's a passage in the Ten Commandments where God says, I visit the sins of the fathers 
unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. You say, well, why does he do that? Visiting the sins upon the third and fourth generation? Wait a minute. That's the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren somehow get blasted by God because of what Grandpa did? What's going on there? Well, to make a long story short, what's happening is that families have different sin patterns. Your family has a sin pattern. My family has a sin pattern. And we either fight it, we redeem it, and we become Christians, or as non-Christians, we develop it. And we come into this world inheriting these things. Maybe, maybe it's partly environment because, remember, three and four generations are the kind that lived in the tents in the desert. They lived close to one another. So grandpa and grandma had quite an influence here all the way down to the third and fourth generation. They weren't ruptured families like we have or, or geographically distributed families like we have. So in that sense, there's a, there's a solidarity in family. So we could go into all kinds of things. All I want to do here is to show you that the Bible takes seriously genealogies. And the most serious thing of all is the ultimate genealogy of all of us tracing our lineage back to a man who acted as our representative at a point in time when he said no to God. I will go my own independent way and I'm taking my descendants with me. We are his descendants. And God said, the moment you do that, Adam, you are going to die. And your entire race is going to die. And we're dying. We share what happened at that moment. Now, if you'll continue in the notes on page 23, the legal moral unity appears to be caused by only the father and not the mother of a child. In Hebrews 7, this unity is a feature involving only the males, Levi and Abraham, not their wives. Imputed sin seems to be credited through the Father alone. Evidently, God hadn't studied modern sociology to realize that that is a gender bias. The virgin birth, therefore, involving only Mary, not Joseph, avoids the imputation of sin to Jesus Christ. Jesus thus acquired true humanity from his earthly mother without acquiring imputed sin from any earthly father. The virgin birth is required for reasons quite apart from the New Testament announcements. Okay? Imputed sin passed by representation of the male. Therefore, the way God dealt with that to create genuine human Messiah was to have him virgin born. So, as far as his genes, his DNA, and as far as his whole, whole legal entity, he came out of Mary. He didn't come out of Joseph. And since there was no male to carry the imputed sin, he doesn't carry the imputed sin. So the Lord Jesus Christ came onto the stage of history free of imputed sin. He's absolutely unique in his birth this way. Okay, let's go now to the third necessity. And this deals with inherent sin. There's still yet another implicit reason for the virgin birth. The Lord Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Now let's turn to Romans 8, verse 3, while we're going there, because there's a fundamental passage in that text. The New Testament, the text of the Bible is so careful 
That's why we want to really be careful when we read it. It's nice to speed read it and get the big picture. But I think those of you taking inductive Bible classes and so on, after you get into it, you're pretty amazed at all the details you begin to see in the text. And you think, wow, I didn't see that there before. Well, it just it goes on. The more you grow in Christ, the more you see this stuff. The New Testament text and the Old Testament text, because it is the Word of God, is written very carefully. Now, Romans 8, there's a little qualification note here. Probably read it a thousand times, might never have thought about it too carefully when you read it before. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, so by the way, which category of sin? Category 1, category 2, or category 3? Personal sin, imputed sin, or inherent sin? How is the law weak? It's inherent sin. Flesh. Well, what the law could not do because of inherent sin, God did. Sending his own son, and now look at the qualifier, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ's body was constitutionally different from ours. It was genuine humanity, but it did not have fallen flesh. He was free of the sin nature. Now, I know that's going to cause a problem later on because people are going to say, oh, well, then he didn't have all the battles we do. He wasn't tempted. Another doctrine comes into play there. New Testament is balanced, and we'll get to that. It turns out his temptations were greater than ours. And we'll see why when we get into the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. But right now, we're just dealing with the virgin birth and the incarnation. And the Bible says that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not sinful flesh. He looked like us. His body was made of the same biological thing. But whatever it was that causes this fallen flesh, and eventually causes physical death too, falls apart, whatever that is, he was free of that. This has another exciting implication, which we probably won't get to this year because we've run out of, we're already in January. So we'll probably get to the death of Christ in the fall. But when Christ died, he didn't die like we did. He actually chose his death. It was not a suicide in the sense that um, suicide is a sinful rebellion against God's sovereignty in my life. But it was an offering of his body before God. And it was a choice to die. Because had he not done that, he could have gone living forever. Didn't have the death sentence on him. And in his humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ could have lived forever. So the very fact that he went to the cross and died was a voluntary act. It caused him to experience death, which he normally would never have experienced, apart from that act. So that adds a little dimension when you start thinking through what he did for us. Um, continuing the notes. For this reason, the Bible very consistently notes that Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh rather than in sinful flesh itself. The revelation of glory observed, past tense, not like in the text, era. That's one of the fallacies of word processors that spell check. They don't grammar check. The revelation of glory observed through Jesus was glory as of the only begotten of the Father. 
Now, it couldn't be glorious of the only begotten of the Father. What's only begotten of the Father? It's uniquely begotten. There's a uniqueness to the Lord Jesus. And that glory wasn't visible anywhere else. Now, God indwelt the prophets. God indwells Christians. But there's no glory in us and in the prophets, anything like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says, qualifies it. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus could claim in his true humanity. I mean, think of this claim. This is why C.S. Lewis said, these people that yak-yak about Jesus being a great teacher, but not being who he claimed to be, are really people who haven't thought through what just came out of their mouth. C.S. Lewis put it something like, Jesus would be either a lunatic or on the level of some man who said he was a poached egg. Look at the claim that Jesus is making here. I do always the things that are pleasing to the Father. Now, can you imagine any of us trying to make that claim? Can you imagine any religious person trying to make that claim? All the religious people that think that. But come on, you know, get real. Nobody can do that. So either this guy is a nun, or he is who he claims to be. And people who say, Jesus, just, oh, I believe he's a good teacher. No, I believe he's a liar. If, if, that's, if you don't accept his deity and you don't accept the salvation story and you sit there and tell me you believe the teacher, I think you're screwed up. You better be just honest and say, no, Jesus was a liar. That's all. He's an imposter. Or this text was created by the church centuries later or something. Jesus could claim, I do always the things. That's his claim to perfection, to moral perfection. Jesus Christ having a sinless though genuine humanity, could qualify as a sacrificial lamb without spot, without blemish. Remember in the Old Testament, they had to have a lamb without blemish? Why do they keep doing that? To set up the category of thinking in people so that believers would be equipped so that when the real lamb came, all the mental categories, all the logic, all the thought forms were in place so we could interpret this guy. Now we understand why they went to a lamb without spot. Because Jesus Christ had to go to the cross without any sin. Because if he had any sin, he would have had to pay for his own sin. He can't be a substitutionary atonement for us if he himself has his own sin to deal with. So all three categories of sin. Now, on page 24, there follows a speculation. And I I offer this as a speculation. It's not part of the theology. <clears throat> but I think it's an intriguing speculation. And I think Dr. Custance, who is a godly Canadian physiologist, has some interesting insights here, biologically. And I think it well may be true. The exact problem is how Jesus could gain true humanity without the indwelling sin nature, inherent sin, to be distinguished from the previously mentioned imputed sin, the Canadian physiologist at Arthur Custance has proposed a fascinating study, have produced a fascinating study of the transmission of inherent sin from Adam to all humanity. He points out that the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 speaks of the seed of the woman, not the seed of Adam, which is a strange usage for the word seed. See, the word seed here in the Greek is translated as sperma. Now, when does females produce sperm? But that's the text. The text says that. The sperm of the woman. Now, what on earth is that? 
He utilizes modern anatomical research that points to the conditional immortality of the female ova. Now let's follow him here. This guy's not ignorant of human anatomy. He worked on it for 35 years. The seed of the woman <coughs> is the only remnant that has retained the original immortality possessed by our first parents. By contrast, the seed of man and the body cells of both the man and the woman have been mortalized. Let me draw a diagram. You don't have the book, so, and it's out of print, I think. So let me draw a diagram that he uses to explain this. The idea is that we have what I call germplasm, which in, that's older biological terms for the, all the information, all the biological structures, that are necessary to make a baby. And after this germplasm multiplies, you get specialized cells out here called body cells. But something happens here. At some point in the biological development, a miraculous thing occurs. That cells that have all the information in them suddenly produce cells that are specialists, that are going to make an ear going to make a leg, going to make a fingernail. But the cells that those cells came from weren't. They were general cells. They could have made anything. One of those massively complicated things that God has built in, and we just take it for granted, never even, you know, chance did it all. Somebody rolled the dice or something. Um, so what Custance is arguing is that the seed of man and the body cells of both man and woman have been mortalized. So let's draw two Let's draw the female germ and body, male germ. This would be the sperm and the ovum, body. Now, what Custance is arguing for is that the body cells of both the male and the female, it's just male and female, these have all been mortalized. Death or whatever this thing is in us has, has thoroughly dominated all this body. Now, he's going to argue on the basis of biological evidence that the male sperm has also been contaminated, but that the female ova isn't. Let's follow him. Even the seed of the woman is fatally poisoned by fusion with a male seed. However, this poison affects only that portion of the woman's seed which will develop into body cells the remainder of her seed continues to form the immortal stream of germplasm. Only if an ovum from this germplasm reservoir can be fertilized by some means not natural to man can a body with the original endowment of potential immortality be recovered again. Since the sin nature is transmitted from the moment of conception, a supernatural intervention is required for the seed of the woman to produce fruit independent of fallen man. So what he is arguing, and if he's correct, is that when Eve was the mother of all living, she really was. And down through Jewish history, you know, you was here, Jewish families was raised in Q&A, and I, I, I just don't have that um, knowledge in Orthodox Judaism to confirm or disconfirm it. The idea that Jewish women would look forward to being the mother of the Messiah it was, it was constantly in the, in the culture that that would have been the greatest thing she could have as a woman, is to be the mother of the Messiah. So, 
that coupled with the fact that Adam called his wife Eva, what Custance is arguing is that this ovum here goes on and on from, from mother to daughter, from mother to daughter, down through history. And it's a sort of uh, a, a setup so that it can be used on down through history when God chooses the moment to use it. When the fullness of the time comes, the Holy Spirit comes upon a young Jewish teenager and he takes advantage of this, so to speak, this um, uh, mechanism that's been preset to go off under a supernatural intervention, under an unnatural intervention. So that's a speculation of a godly physiologist, and I offer it just as that. Now, for something more scripturally based, turn to Psalm 139 a moment. This is a central reference to the fetus. This is a central passage in the Bible on what happens in the womb. Psalm of David, verses 13 through 16. We won't exegete the passage tonight because it's a whole problem of Hebrew translation in verse 16 that's involved. But let's look at um, thir- just 13, 14, 15. Look at the, at the context of this. For thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were none of them. Let's look at that passage. Today, maybe because we're more biologically informed, when you hear stories about mothers who are in crack and they have crack babies and the baby inherits all this garbage that are, the poor, poor baby inherits what not. And women who don't take care of themselves while they're pregnant. Um, this is kind of a sobering thing because in verse 16, what he is saying is that his personal destiny is being shaped in the womb. I mean, it's a wonderful, eloquent passage for protection of what is happening during those nine months. And it's so important because in verse 16 it says, in thy book, it's God's book, and what's going on in the womb has to do with the the baby's whole life that he's going to live. It's all shaped there. God is working in the womb. Of course, today he gets frequently interrupted in his work. But what I want to point to tonight is verse 15 the metaphor that he uses. And it's a conscious memory of Genesis chapter 2. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, how did God make Adam? Let's remember that passage. What did he do first? He reached down to the... He physically creates his body. And then what does God do after he physically creates the body? He blows into the nostrils the breath of life. And the third thing that happens, he becomes a nephesh. He becomes a living person. So it's the material part of man, the immaterial part of man, wedded together, becomes a person. But it was done in the garden. 
Now, when, it, when I was made, verse 15, in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, what is David talking about there? Why does he use that metaphor? He knows he was in the womb. Why does he refer to his mother's womb as the depths of the earth? I believe it's because he has on his mind Genesis 2. And he sees what goes on in the womb as almost like a recapitulation of what was going on in the Garden of Eden when God was making. Just as God carefully built Adam, so God is carefully building him. So we have this analogy then with, with Adam. And going back to the notes on page 24. An analogy thus exists between the creation of the first Adam and the creation of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ was formed in the womb, Mary. <coughs> the female embryo was structured to bring forth mankind just as the original ground in the Garden of Eden was structured to bring forth Adam. The second Adam was a special object of the Father's direct creative work upon the womb or earth, just as the first Adam was. By the way, let's turn to Hebrews 10.5. Because that does figure prominently in, in this passage in the virgin birth. This is a prophecy out of the Old Testament that's messianic. And in Hebrews 10.5 it says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, this is the God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. When he comes into the world, he says, he's talking to the Father. The Son is talking to the God, the Father. God, the Son is talking to God, the Father. And he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. So there's the incarnation and there's the body that's prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's going on in, in Mary's womb. The second Adam, uh, or more, was fitting that just as the woman first brought sin into the world, so she would first bring salvation into the world. First Timothy 2, let's turn there too. This is another New Testament passage that's caused commentators over the years to hit the greasy spot sometimes. 1 Timothy 2.13. I notice the uh, NASV translation takes one of the two possible interpretations. Um, but let me look at it. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.13. Context, he talked about the gender roles in the congregation. This is an interesting, quote, practical issue. And then all of a sudden he goes back to the Genesis narrative to deal with a practical issue. Yeah, that's right. Because the Genesis narrative is a very practical narrative. It sets up the framework for the practical issues. And he says, it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. Sounds like he read Genesis too, doesn't it? And then it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But the, so he sees the order. The woman sinned first, then Adam. But the woman shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctify. Well, there's a whole thing about translating verse 15. 
But there's a tradition in the church that what Paul's referring to in verse 15 is, yeah, the women will be preserved through the bearing of children, but it's one child in particular that vindicates the role of the woman. That is, the woman was the first one to sin, but the woman is the one through whom the light of the world comes. Salvation comes through the female, not the male. If you continue in the notes, the last sentence in that paragraph on page 24, even today, this prominent role of the woman is remembered in the Jewish Passover each year as the woman of the house initiates the actual cedar by lighting the candle before the rest of the service proceeds. Nothing can happen. Men can sit around the table all they want to. But according to the liturgy, it has to be a woman of the house that lights the candle. Then and only then does the rest of the Passover proceed. The virgin birth is a spiritual necessity for the incarnation of God. Henry Morris is right when he says it is not surprising, therefore, that the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ has always been a watershed between true Christians and either non-Christians or pseudo-Christians. Without such a miraculous birth, there could be no true incarnation, therefore no salvation. The man, Jesus, would have been a sinner by birth and thus in need of a Savior himself. Now, what we're going to do, uh, we'll just introduce it tonight. What, we want to follow the method. Remember I told you the method I'm following? We've outlined the positive side of this act, the virgin birth, the incarnation. Now what we're going to study is the reactions to that. And on page 25, it's the Jewish reaction. And then on page 26 is the Gentile reaction. We only have time tonight to look at the Jewish reaction. But whether it's the Jewish or the Gentile, it both precedes and illustrates the presupposition of unbelief. That believers will come to something like the virgin birth and accept it. The non-Christian comes to a thing like the virgin birth and he gets all hot under the collar about it and rejects it. Why? Same virgin birth. But the virgin birth claim is being interpreted through one grid over here and another grid over here. And here's where we're going to see presuppositional apologetics come out. Ancient Jewish rejection. The Jews had to deal with this. The virgin birth claim was being made. Turn to John 8.41 and you'll see how apparently they were already doing this at the time of the Lord Jesus. The Jewish excuse to cover up and interpret the virgin birth claim is that Jesus was an illegitimate child. That Mary fornicated. See, you can't be nice about this. The Bible is quite brutal. It forces you to take a position. Now, people don't like to take positions. People don't like this. But the Bible backs you into a corner. You've got to say it was a virgin birth and Mary fornicated. In John 8, 41, this is a hint. Many exegetical scholars have, have seen this as sort of an insinuation. It's one of these angry discourses between Jesus and the Jews. And he says, you're doing the deeds of your father. In other words, you're murderers. Not nice. This is the gentle Jesus operating, by the way, in John 8. They said unto him, we weren't born of fornication. Now, where did they get that one from? See, it's an insinuation that this, this was on the, on the street. This is the talk in the street. And Jesus had to deal with that all of his life. That you're a bastard. You're an illegitimate child. And I give you on the notes, page 25, Jewish authorities. 
to show you that this was a part of Jewish tradition. Um, halfway down, Joseph Klausner, a Jewish scholar, writes of the Mishnaic section. Mishnaic is, is a book, a compilation of writings of Jews uh, from the general New Testament period. That Jesus is here referred to seems beyond all doubt. Klausner notes that throughout the Jewish Talmud, including its, its Mishnaic section, Jesus is known as Yeshu ben Pentera, Jesus the son of Pendera, a title which may refer to Mary's alleged paramour or to the virgin birth claim itself. The virgin in Greek is Parthenos. Another Talmudic scholar, Herbert Danby, summarizes the entire Talmudic reference to the virgin birth claim. A Yeshu, see that's Jesus' name, Jesus, Yeshu, called Natsri, so son of Steda or son of Pandera, or Pandera, <coughs> was born out of wedlock. His mother was called Miriam. She was a woman's hairdresser. <coughs> the word here is Magdala, a pun on the Magdalene, so they confused Mary Magdalene with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Two different women, by the way. Her husband was Pappas, the son of Yehuda. They at least got that right. He was, a, he was of the Judaic line. And her paramour, a Roman soldier, Pantera. Thus, ancient Jewish belief very clearly contradicted the actuality of the virgin birth by the clear counterclaim that Mary fornicated. Unwittingly, however, this very kind of reaction refutes later unbelief among Gentile critics that the virgin birth came later in church history. Couldn't have come later in church history because early on they were already calling Jesus a bastard. So, that, the, point, the argument here is that this whole issue came up during Jesus' lifetime. Probably John 8, he's dealing with it right there. So if, if they're calling him a bastard, why are they doing that? They're doing it because they have to deal with a virgin birth claim. So it obviously shows that the virgin birth claim was circulating at the time of Jesus. It's not a later edition by 100 or 200 A.D. when the church thought, gee, it would be really nice to jazz up the Messiah story a little bit. Let's stick the virgin birth in it. That's a nice thing to add on to it. It's not a church edition. Uh, ancient Jewish fornication theories testify that the virgin birth claim occurred in the very beginning of church history. Okay, next week we'll deal with the Gentile rejection. And we want to look now, because we're going to see light and darkness. Remember Jesus said, who do you say I am? We're getting a clear answer here. A lot of people call him a bastard. And that's who they said he was. So, the point we want to say is why. Let's examine as the forces of evil begin to react to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to do a little anatomy. We're going to cut it open and see what kind of pussy mess we get up out of unbelief. We want to look at it in its ugliness and see, because that is an expose of the human heart. And Jesus reveals the human heart by virtue of how the human heart and its depravity responds to him. Father, we thank you for these scriptures and for the light your Son has given in history. We sit back and we realize all the intricacies involved in human biological reproduction and how you created humanity to be a vehicle for the incarnation. You created the hairs on our head, our five fingers in each hand, our toes, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our body. Because that was the form you chose to be the greatest revelation of your being. 
And we thank You that we can sit here tonight and just contemplate who You are and give You thanks and begin to adore You properly for Your great and magnificent work, not only in creation, but in coming into the incarnation that You may die for our sins and that You engineered this in a most miraculous and stunning way, intruding into a sinful world and generating a genuine man-savior who would be free from all three categories of sin. We thank You for our so great salvation, for that's all we can do is thank You, because we cannot add to it, we cannot subtract from it, and we cannot twist or pervert it. We can only accept it as a gift by faith in Your Son. Amen.